I heard you use the word they a lot, and I've asked this question to several other guests, and who is they? The functional entities that are generating the power and transmitting the power that are ruining our lives are the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. They are creating agendas and agreements and all this. This is by design. United Nations has an agenda to transform the world. The World Economic Forum is basically the hub where they're putting people together to make the agenda come true. You are now tuned into Stay Dangerous. Well, man, uh, I am like super pumped to have you here. Like, and I got to apologize to the, the listeners in advance because uh, I kind of want to more sit back and listen because I'm just so <laughs> I'm so intrigued by you and uh, and the work you put out. So I uh, probably end up being more spectator for the show than a, than an interviewer. But uh, before we get started, I want to give you a chance to really talk about how you got to where you are because uh, you've really picked up a lot of popularity and, and became a strong voice and kind of speaking against wokeism uh, in the last few years. And I think a lot of this came out of these 20 hoax papers you yeah. put out. So I don't know if that was, that's how we first learned about you here. So I'd love you to talk about those, you know, how you made it to become the voice you are right now and, uh, and you know, why would you have to say actually has credibility? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing. A lot of people like ask me this because if they know anything about my background, one of the things they know is that I have a PhD in math and then I did not work professionally in math at all. And then I went on to make it just really crazy. I went on to, was a massage therapist for a decade. So I was doing massage. You're, ma you're a mathematician. Yeah. Doctor, a mathematician doing this. Yeah, doing, ma doing massages. And so, <laughs> so what, you know? And so they're like, how in the world are you talking about like woke and communism and like yeah. all this stuff? And so in essence, I kind of got academically bored. I started to fight with people on the internet. You know, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. on the internet who are wrong and you have to stay up late and fight with people <laughs> on the internet. It's just a thing. There's whole memes about it. And so I was doing that, you know, like 10 years ago, and I just started noticing there was a lot of this stuff that we would now call woke. Nobody called it woke back then. We were like third wave radical feminism or something. And so I, instead of just like yelling about it, which I did some of that too, I started asking people some questions like, where does this come from? And these feminist ladies sent me these papers, mm. you know, these articles. And we're like, this is what sexism is really about. This is how misogyny really works. I took them seriously enough to read it. And I, you know, I thought about it for a little while and I was like, wow, this stuff's crazy. And so while I'm reading it, um, I decided that, you know, it's really off the rails. Me and a colleague of mine named Pete Bogosian thought these people are ripe for some academic hoax work. So let's mm. write a fake paper and send it in. So we wrote this fake paper in 2017 called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. So we mm -hmm. said that we're not going to think of penises as organs. We're going to think of them as a social construct. That's like their favorite word for everything. And then what we're going to do is we're going to say that they cause all of our problems, especially climate change. And this paper kind of ends up getting picked up by a really, really bad journal, uh, like probably a predatory or pay-to-play journal, so not even a real journal. And so we spiked the football anyway. We're like, ah, gender studies is stupid. And it turned into this big controversy. And so then they were like, why don't you, uh, if you wanted to prove your case, you'd have to like write a whole bunch of them and put them in high level journals. And we're like, all right, let's do that. So we spent the next year, all of 17, most of 18, writing as many of these papers as we could. So we wrote 20 of them. And just for, I mean, a lot of people, this isn't like writing an op-ed. A lot yeah. of people don't know about the academic publishing thing. Usually it takes about a year to write one of these things. It's like a month's long. Like after you write it and you submit it, it's like months before they decide if they can accept it and publish it. It's like a big deal. It's not like just writing an article for a newspaper. And they're like 10,000 words long. I mean, they're huge, right? And so we wrote 20 of these things like super fast in a year. And we submitted them to a bunch of journals. Seven of them got accepted. One got an award for excellence. They were about crazy stuff. Like the most famous one was about studying dog sex to find out something about rape culture so we go to the wow. dog park and dogs hump each other and how do people react to it all just a hoax like you just all like a hoax spoof, spoof. just so stupid yeah. <laughs> it was so stupid we were like guys get like they cheer for the dog if it's like a male dog on a female dog but they get really mad at the dog and like attack the dog if it's a male dog on a male mm -hmm. dog and it's like so we concluded we can beat rape culture by training men the way we train dogs and just this stupid stuff, but we got a bunch, we wanted to validate that we knew what we were talking about when we criticized this stuff. And so we got a bunch of these papers accepted. One of them was, we we, we, we wanted to make good on, on Rush Limbaugh's, you know, claim that they were feminazis. So we rewrote a chapter out of Hitler's Mein Kampf as feminism in a social work journal accepted it. And so literally mm -hmm. we wrote Nazi propaganda as, uh, as feminism and they were like, yeah, this is great. 
this is perfect for social work. So, you know, that really kind of got us digging into this. And what I thought I saw was so scary that I was like, I want to dedicate my life to studying this and exposing it. And I asked my wife if I could quit my job. She was like, can you make money doing that? And I was like, I don't know. And so she was kind enough to give me, you know, a runway of 18 months to try to figure it out. And uh, I've just, I've made new discourses as my company. And the goal was just to study this, you know, woke or communism or whatever, and get the information out to people as quickly and digestibly as possible. And so basically, since about the middle of 2017, people are like, what are you reading these days? I only read communists. I only read Marxist literature or woke literature. I don't read a, anything about it. I just read that stuff. Like on the flight down here, I was I was reading a book about what's called degrowth communism. So I'm mm -hmm. still reading this stuff like every day. And so that's kind of how I got to be where I am. These fake papers were the kind of launching point and my, my ability to discover. What I thought, what I saw was that they are willing to use... Um, what am I looking for here? They were willing, to, they're willing to hurt people. They're willing to use like psychological abuse to get people out of privilege. They say that they're going to put people into discomfort and change is uncomfortable. So we're going to make people uncomfortable. And then they said we can't use compassion for people who have privilege. And I was like, this ends in genocide. So I want to, sure. I want to stop it. And so, like I said, now we're in six, seven years. It's all I've done. You, you talked a lot about the degrowth of the West. And, and uh, for a while, we've been building China up. I've, uh, you know, and when I say we, I mean even the United States, yeah, the America States participates too, yeah. in, in build, building China up. And uh, you talk about the uh, uh, see if I say it right, the Thiso duties trap, <laughs> Thucydides, Thucydides, Thucydides trap, yeah, Thucydides trap, the Greek guy, yeah, yeah. That, so, uh, so can you explain what like what yeah? So just so you know who he is, Thucydides was a philosopher back during the Peloponnesian War, and what he was talking about was Athens and Sparta. So we all know about Athens and Sparta now because of that movie and everything, and so. You know, Sparta was a rising power, and Athens was the established power. And what Thucydides said is when you have an established power like Athens and you have a rising power like Sparta, what's going to happen eventually is war. You're trapped into war. As the rising power gets stronger and stronger, eventually it's going to want to make its claim, you know, on its territory or try to expand or try to take over and become the hegemon or whatever. And so this is a—he described this thing called Thucydides' trap that— says that you get trapped into war as the rising power comes up to match the power of the existing power. And so we find ourselves allegedly in that situation. China is the rising power. America is the existing power in the West. You know, it's the Five Eyes Alliance and all of that too. So we have this, this, these two competing powers where China rising up. But what's actually happened is this has been manufactured. You had people like Kissinger going over in the 70s making deals with the CCP to open up markets in China, to bring American manufacturing to China in order to, you know, get cheap goods and services for Americans or more relevantly to make American businessmen really rich. Yeah. And that's why people are like, well, why would anybody participate in this? Because there's a pot of gold. That's why. A huge yeah. pot this of gold. like the McKinsey, McKinsey and Company. Yeah, of folks. course. So they're going to make China like, the manufacturing base, this allowed China to build itself. Everybody knows about Mao, but they don't know who followed Mao in America. We don't, we don't talk about it enough. It's a guy named Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping had a philosophy, and he said he wanted to make socialism in China and CCP great. And he said that, I don't care if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. So I don't care how we make China great. I don't care if we use a market. I don't care if we use communism. I don't care how we do it. That's the white or black cats. I just want China to get rich and powerful and on the world stage. And we fed them this. And then all along, people like Kissinger knew all along that this was going to create Thucydides' trap for the West. So this puts us in what's called the trap of Thucydides' trap. They've built up the rising power where we should have been treating the CCP as an international criminal organization all along, sanctions and everything else. But instead, what we've been doing is building it up, letting them build off of us China's economy is not booming. China's economy is a parasite off the rest of the world. And it's become very rich, very powerful, very dangerous. And so now they say, oh, we have to avoid war at all costs. Well, according to Thucydides' trap, there is no way to avoid the war. The rising power is going to assert itself. The dominant power is not going to give itself away unless one thing. How do you avoid this war, which will have nuclear weapons and everything else involved, and the Chinese are going to be brutal, blah, blah, blah. How do you avoid this war? Well, you make the, the dominant power too weak mm. to be able to fight. 
So it's like, you know, it's you used to fight or maybe you still do. I fight or used to fight. I don't fight anymore. Uh, I try to keep my head out of fists <laughs> way. Um, I don't need a concussion these days. But uh, it's, it's a classic thing that you got a prize fighter who's throwing the match. Mm. And that's the West. It's all this degrowth stuff in the West. We're throwing the match. That's the whole idea is if we end up getting to the point where the war arises and, you know, the U.S. is like, a dude in his fifties with a torn hamstring, he's not going to get in the ring and fight. He's going, ah, just yeah, I concede, give it over. And so we hand the baton to China, and we have the century of Asia, is what they call it. So the reason that we're doing all this ESG stuff, the environmental social governance, all the woke stuff, the reason our government's pushing it, why, like all the policy that you see out of the Biden administration that doesn't make any sense, right? It all makes sense when you realize that they're the prize fighter trying to throw the fight. And why would they do that? The same reason any prize fighter would. There's a pot of gold in it for them. Mm, they're, they're, sure. They've made tons of money. They don't really particularly care. And if we don't have the ability to fight when the war comes, we won't fight. And war gets avoided. But also, it turns out the CCP becomes the, yeah. the leader of the world. This was, you know, I spent a lot of times. I wrote, uh, wrote the book Saving Aziz and spent a tremendous amount of time on the media speaking about the motivation behind Afghanistan evacuation because it just didn't make military sense from right. a strategic point because you know, we forfeited the most strategic place in the globe between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. And, and uh, you know, you can't understand it unless you look at who benefits most. Yeah. And, you know, the com China's Communist Party, uh, CCP, right. uh, benefited the most. They, you know, the trillions, if not more, dollars of, of indefinite amount of dollars of uh, lithium in the and mineral rights in the Hindu Kush mountains. Uh, That's right. They got by we we left August thirtieth. By August thirty first, they'd already negotiated those rights with the Taliban. Uh, they built to move sanctioned oil from Iran into China. Like all these things, like they benefited from us, including militarily to have the you know Bagram Air Force Base or, or yeah. Afghanistan, the most strategic place in in uh, you know Southeast Asia. Uh, and so you, you look at who motivate who is who got the most out of it, which would have been China, and who had the ability to stop it, which would have been the White House. President Biden, yeah, and uh, you, it's pretty easy to do two plus two equals equals four. Yeah, so and uh, across the board, you name the policy, and you can figure you can figure it back to the same strategy again and again and again and again. Whether it's again, whether it's our energy policy, our food policy, whether it's even the policy that where we just keep dumping money and in, in arms into Ukraine and making Russia, what what's been the response? It doesn't matter if you think Russia's good guy or bad guy, Ukraine's good guy or bad. Guy. It doesn't actually matter. What's this, what's happening? Russia's gone into an, a giant economic alliance with China. Sure. Neither of the two could have done what they can do together unless they got in this giant economic alliance. And now they got this BRICS thing going on. And the BRICS thing is supposed to, you know, be all this uh, financial weapon against the West. And the West is probably going to take another big hit on the chin. Why did this happen? Well, because there was all this pressure put to, you know, through Ukraine on Russia so that Russia would ally with China. Of course, lines, and yeah. what you see is again and again and again, a bunch of what looks like strategic blunders mm -hmm. that all point in one single direction, which is the CCP grows and the West diminishes. And this is the strategy is to avoid the incoming war that comes if China is allowed to rise and the United States is allowed to stay strong. Hey folks, I got a shout out for our new awesome sponsor, Midas Gold Group. These guys are the real deal, a family business in precious metals for two generations run by Marine Corps veterans who are all about supporting veteran causes and putting America first. But the best part, they know that true financial freedom comes from owning private currency like gold and silver. If you're feeling a bit worried about the unknown and want to secure finances, look no further than Midas Gold Group. With all the crazy stuff happening these days, it's smart to be prepared. If you don't know, our financial data is stored electronically, from bank deposits to retirement accounts, and let's face it, our digital grid isn't exactly invincible. That's where owning gold and silver can save the day, and it's becoming a seriously compelling option. Now here's the scoop. Inflation is nibbling away at your dollar's buying power, and major players like Russia, China, India, and Saudi Arabia are making moves to trade oil in different currencies. This could shake things up big time, as the dollar stability depends on being the world's trade currency. The central bank digital currency is virtually already here, with patents filed and big banks making plans. And Midas Gold Group sees potentially sketchy implications here. Will it mean the end of cold, hard-earned cash? Is it tied to social credit scores? Storing all our financial info on digital ledgers sounds pretty risky, doesn't it? That's why you can count on Midas Gold Group. They're here to lend a helping hand 
They've got competitive pricing, top-notch service, and lightning-fast deliveries all across the United States and Canada. And get this, they could even show you how to use your IRA and old retirement plan to own physical gold and silver without getting hit by any additional tax implications. So listen up, folks. When it comes to precious metals, Midas Gold Group is the real deal and the only one I trust. Give them a ring at 855-322-GOLD. That's 855-322-4653 or hit up their website at midasgoldgroup.com. That's midasgoldgroup.com. They're all about giving friendly, no pressure advice on precious metals. And guess what? If you drop my name, Chad Robichaux, they're throwing in some free silver with any qualifying account. You can't beat that, right? So don't wait around. Secure your financial future with Midas Gold Group. Swing by MidasGoldGroup.com or dial 855-322-4653 and make sure you mention Chad Show sent you. Trust me, you'll be glad you did. Well, this term degrowth, which I think is an important term, especially for the listeners, like I think there's going to be a lot of key terms that I think the listeners need to be able to keep. Yeah, there's a lot. Please point those in whenever you have them. But I mean, degrowth itself, I mean... uh, realistically it's not really new right i mean is this not just a rebranding of communism that we've seen i mean is it it is it's communism but i mean as a term specifically the term kind of arose in the 90s and they kind of allowed a lot of like uh you know activism in the kind of environmental spaces around the idea of degrowth so you know you kind of have these two competing models one is is green green growth literally which is like we're going to build out green energy. We're going to have, you know, windmills. We're going to have solar. We're going to have, we're going to grow, grow, grow using renewables, right? And everybody can kind of just look at this and see this isn't going to work. Yeah. And the other model is, well, our economy is too big. We consume too much. We produce too much. We have too much waste. So let's shrink our economy. And that's degrowth. Mm. So rather than pushing for green growth, they've now switched all the messaging for the last like 10, 15 years. Degrowth has been growing and it's real quiet. But they've been pushing green growth, green growth, green growth. And now all of a sudden, it's kind of like, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Like, this isn't going to work. Everybody's seen in the pictures of the windmills, yeah. like the blades in the being buried because they can't recycle them or they can't do anything with them when they wear out. They're finding out that it's killing species of whales offshore in, in, in the North Atlantic. And like, all these problems. Yeah. Like, this isn't going to... We, we see how dirty the solar industry is. We also see that it's enriching China to, to do it. China's building new coal factories like in burning gobs of oil like every single week or whatever so they can make solar panels to sell to the west yeah like my gosh i mean like just the mining of lithium yeah <laughs> like the mining of lithium in particular and so then what what's going on they're they're, they're like this isn't going to work so now they're saying oh well we need to degrow we need to get used to less but it turns out if you actually read the marxist literature back even to the 1960s uh, and arguably from this book I was reading on my flight here, which is literally about degrowth communism uh, by a Japanese Marxist, he says it goes back to actually Marx at the very beginning and the very end of his career, but not so much in the middle. Uh, when he was you know, wrapping up in the 1880s, right before he died, he was writing a lot about like the natural sciences and, and the need to like conserve nature. And the idea is, in fact, that we need to shrink down our economy to what they call a steady state or a circular economy where the only things we actually consume are our own waste. There'll be no new steel production, no new concrete production. We're just going to recycle all of it. Mm. Now, I talked to some metallurgists, not that I'm, I don't know a ton about steel, but I, I talked to some guys and they're like, if we were to, the best recycling process that you can do on steel right now, will produce steel that's about roughly of the same quality from, from like the 1870s which means you can't build modern skyscrapers, yeah. you can't build modern infrastructure, you can't use it for a lot. At the same time, we're supposed to get rid of like cars and we're going to instead have lots of rail, but with no new steel and no new concrete, like none of it makes sense. None of it adds up, yeah. It, the point isn't for it to work, it's for it to all, to you know, we're going to jump all in on this and it's all going to fail and then we just don't have anything. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, we've shut down our refineries, we've shut down our nuclear plants, we've shut down our pipelines, we've shut down all of our energy abundance. And then we've hamstrung ourselves. So, yeah, the idea is to degrow the economy, but it's just communism. It's right. just the idea of we're all going to get used to less. And since there's scarcity now, we're going to have to have centrally pl- central planning to make sure everything, you know, works out. And everybody's going to get put on basically rations. We're not going to have any meat. Like they're pushing this thing called C40 cities right now. And um, 
One of the deals with C40 cities, with your ambitious goal by 2030, it's not the Is this target. the 15-minute city? Like, well, they or? are le leaning toward 15-minute cities, but the C40 thing is like some kind of a climate pledge okay. or something. So by 2030, it's supposed to be like the ambitious target is no meat consumption at all. Austin and Houston are both on the list, by the way. Can you imagine no meat in Austin, wow, Texas? Oh gosh, no meat consumption. You can only uh, buy three new garments a year. Three. Three new pieces of clothing a year. Everything else, you just got to figure it out. You can only get one return if you fly away. Like, say you live in, in Houston, you fly out, fly out of Bush or whatever, and you want to fly home. You can only fly home once every three years. These are the things that they're actually trying to push for in, you know, 40 different cities around the globe. And it's, I forget how many in the U.S., uh, you know, 20 almost. And it's just the idea of shrinking back our way of life to where it doesn't create any emissions. And in other words, so the government gets to put strict like environmental regulations on everyday activities of every single person down to like what you can eat, how much, what you can wear, how you can travel or if you can travel. And so the 15 minute city is a model that will make that workable. Right. Uh, you know, you, you live in a city, 15 minute city means everything that you need for life. You can walk to within mm. 15 minutes. Yeah. And so you live in a high rise apartment with like a million other people and you have like a Starbucks or something in the basement. So you don't have to go anywhere to get coffee. You have coffee. You don't have to go to the grocery store or like next door. So you don't have to go anywhere. It's just right there. Everything you need or that you might ever need in life is within a 15 minute walk. And then if you look at what they're doing in China, they basically build big fences around these neighborhoods and they put facial recognition cameras and they track if you come and go, you can't leave. Everything's operated through social credit, so you can't buy stuff if they don't like you or if you're not participating well to uphold the community if you leave too many times. They're experimenting with us in England, so it's like really happening. Um, yeah, this is not conspiracy. It's not conspiracy. It's really happening, and it's degrowth communism. The full name of degrowth is degrowth communism. Mm -hmm. They just don't tell you that usually when they talk about how important degrowth is. But that's the idea. I heard you use the word they a lot, and I've asked this question to several other guests, and no offense to my other guests. We, I just haven't got the satisfactory answer. So maybe you could hit me with, who is they? Well, I mean, they. there are probably real they's out there. And every time I say it, people think I'm talking about the Jews. I'm not talking about the Jews. <laughs> it's not the Jews. If you want a group of people to point a finger at that are like weird shadowy power figures, I'm going to point my finger straight at the royal families before I'm going to point my finger at any religion. But that was beside the point. Functionally speaking, I want you. I want to give the metaphor of a car, right? Okay. So if you want, to, if you want your car to go somewhere, the tires are going to spin, the, and that's going to create friction. And it's going to push the car, right? Mm. The tires don't spin by themselves. They got to be hooked up to the engine. The engine creates the power. So where's the engine? The engine's in the United Nations. Functionally speaking, there might be somebody driving the car, right? But the engine is the United Nations. And the way that the power gets from the engine to the wheels is through the transmission. Every car has a transmission. The transmission is the World Economic Forum. So for practical purposes, and I really do mean practical because if yeah. there are a they out there that's like the driver, they're not touchable. They're, they're beyond reach. They are ensconced in layers of, of protection. The functional entities that are generating the power and transmitting the power that are ruining our lives are the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. Overwhelmingly, the World Economic Forum works like the transmission. It's not generating the power. It's not generating the ideas. It's bringing government, business, nonprofit leaders together to have big, you know, crazy parties in the, in the I guess, Swiss Alps. Mm -hmm. And they're all el rubbing elbows and signing agreements and having like secret meetings in the back rooms and everything else. And they got to have their excuse to keep having their ski parties and all of that. Yeah. And they are creating agendas and agreements and all this. None they of this are is consequential or, or it's, this is by design. This... The, the United Nations has an agenda. That agenda is called Agenda 2030 right now. It used to be called Agenda 21. They couldn't make it by two years ago, so they've stuck it out to 2030. There's a longer agenda that's to be met by 2050. The United Nations has an agenda to transform the world. The World Economic Forum is basically the hub where they're putting people together to make the agenda come true. Hey guys, Chad Robichaud here. Are you ready to experience the greatest beef you'll ever taste while supporting an incredible cause? Well, get ready to sink your teeth into the irresistible beef from Skyrose Cattle Company. At Skyrose Ranch, where Mighty Oaks Foundation holds our West Coast legacy programs, Wayne Hughes Jr., the founder of Skyrose Cattle Company, has dedicated over a decade to perfecting the art of raising premium beef. And guess what? You can now enjoy the fruits of his labor right in the comfort of your own home 
with the absolute highest quality beef you can find, hands down. And trust me, I'm a carnivore and I've tasted plenty of steaks and nothing comes close to a Skyro steak. These cattle are grass-fed and free of antibiotics, hormones, and vaccines. And for the last 10 years, I've personally watched these cattle graze 25,000 acres in Central Coast, California, and the taste is unbeatable. When you choose to purchase Skyro's beef, you're also making a difference by supporting the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Wayne is all about helping our deserving military and first responder communities through our faith-based resiliency and recovery programs. In every single penny, of your purchase goes directly towards assisting our nation's warriors. Let me reiterate this, because it's crazy. 100% of the proceeds of Skyro's cattle goes directly to Mighty Oaks Foundation to support our nation's warriors. So let's join forces and make a positive impact one delicious bite at a time and head over to skyroscattleco.com. That's skyroscattleco.com today and order yourself some tender, juicy cuts of beef Trust me, your taste buds will thank you. And one more little insider secret. Every warrior who goes through Mighty Oaks Legacy Program at Sky Rose will assure you that this beef is extraordinary and off the charts delicious. The very first thing our warriors get when they get to Mighty Oaks programs on Sky Rose Ranch is a delicious Sky Rose steak hanging off the side of their plates with a Sky Rose brand on it. And our warriors love them and you will too. Yeah, and again, not conspiracy. It's... This is a. I mean, it's so like open Agenda Twenty Thirty is the stupidest thing. People call it a conspiracy. I get so frustrated. Like, yeah. have you ever been to their website? Like, it's go it, to yeah. any, go type in on any search engine, United Nations, and just go to any one of their websites, and you're going to find Agenda Twenty Thirty mentioned. It's on right. all. It's like yeah. if it's a conspiracy theory, it's really weird that it's on all of their official yeah. websites. This isn't hidden. You can go to the the, the Agenda Twenty Thirty website itself, the Sustainable Development Goals, the, the Seventeen Goals. There's thousands of pages of literature talking about how they're going to work it into everything, how they're going to work it into all aspects of education, how they're going to work it into every higher education institute, which is happening already in Canada, by the way. It'll be coming to the U.S. next. They're working it into K-12 education. They're working it into business, the ESG uh, things that are coming out of like BlackRock and the World Economic Forum. All those ESG requirements that are contorting, contorting our businesses and our cities to have to participate in all this, guess what they point at? The Sustainable Development Goals of Agenda 2030. Yeah. It's that's all it's so in terms of that. So important you say that because that's I, I, as I talk about this stuff, a lot of people like that I've spoken to like believe this conspiracy, and it's like this is like officially their position that they they publicize. Yeah. So it's, you know, not my opinion. It's not conspiracy at all. This is what they're actually saying they're going to do. Brother, I was walking through O'Hare Airport a couple of months ago, and they had the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and a big poster on the wall. Like, yeah. why would that be in O'Hare Airport on a big like electronic poster? If it's a fake conspiracy, it's, you know, O'Hare airport is not putting up crazy conspiracy theory stuff or this is actually a a huge agenda. They talk about it all the time. You can't go like two days on the news without hearing the the phrase 2030 a billion times. There's something to do with it. You do a really good job of explaining how, how ESG we're hearing this term a lot now, how, how that plays into this. Can you explain that to the audience of, yeah. So ESG scoring is, is, it sounds super complicated. It's not super complicated. It turns out ESG scoring is kind of this thing that they use in what's called index funds. So that's basically where long-term investments is where all your pensions, all the pension money is. So they get like $10 trillion of not their money. Whose money? Your money. Your retirement money. All these like Democrat states in particular, all of the state pension funds are all tied up in these big index funds. So Back in 2003, it wasn't at BlackRock, you know, with Larry Fink. It wasn't at even the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab. It was a guy named James Gifford who was a intern at the United Nations, came up with this idea that there's all this money, 6 to $10 trillion of long-term passive investment money, which is people's pensions. It's people's retirement money. And they said, well, you know, one of the best things that's happening in the world, and they, in this case, is James Gifford. He's a, he, he's a very specific name. He probably has an address somewhere. Like he's a real person. And I'm not saying go find him. I'm saying he's an actual human being yeah. that lives yeah. life like us. And so he had this idea that, you know, impact investing is where if I want to, you know, let's say I want to go, uh, let's say that I'm rich, which I'm not, but I want to invest money in stocks. And I pick my stocks according to, you know, social or environmental or whatever, you know, activism. 
So I go invest in Solyndra or whatever else, you know, some green energy or I go invest in whatever. So I do that. That's called impact investing. If I do that, or I have a financial services guy and he's like, I do impact investing so that the money, your return on investment won't necessarily be as big, but the idea will be that you're going to make a difference in the world. Mm. That's called impact investing. So he said all this money sitting in these pension funds for decades, not being put into impact investing because it's not technically their money. If I want to do impact investing with my money, that's my choice, but I can't take your retirement and go impact invest it because that should be your choice, right? And so this guy cooks up this idea. Why don't we come up with a scoring mechanism that allows us to list which stocks are more geared toward impact investing? And they created these huge index funds around what's called ESG investing, uh, which stands for environmental, social, and governance. The pretext is and maybe it wasn't pretext at the beginning. I'm going to say it was, but I don't know for sure. The pretext is if they have bad environmental policy, they won't last for the long term. So it's a bad long term investment. If they have bad social policy, something will happen. They'll get accused of doing racist something and they'll tank. And so it's not a good long term investment. And if they have bad corporate governance, obviously, then they're going to not be that successful in the long term. So there's it kind of makes sense. But the goal was to do activism with people's retirement money. That was the whole point of the whole thing from the get-go. So they cook up this scoring system, ESG, and they started putting it on different index funds. If you want to, you know, be get your stock listed on that, you've got to be ESG compliant. So they start to come up with all these different policies. Well, it turns out they get to make up what counts as being environmental, mm-hmm. which means it's all climate crisis agenda. It's not feeding kids Africa. It's, it's no, it's LGBTQ. It's whatever they get to <laughs> they get to decide what counts as good social responsibility, and it's all like you said, LGBTQ. It's all the woke stuff, and that all started really bending that way in like two thousand, right after the financial crisis, two thousand eight and nine. They all started to go all into woke, and then they get to decide what's good governance which that's kind of the most incestuous of all of them because it's like, well, what's good governance? Well, putting the people we say in charge, that's good governance, mm-hmm. right? So they can install like officers, like your DEI officers. Why do you have DEI officers at every company? Because their ESG score sucks if they don't have them. That's why. And this and, is why you see companies like Bud Light doing something that doesn't uh, that's exactly ent- right. entertain their customer base. They're, they care more about their ESG score than their customer base to have access to these trillions of dollars. That's right, because... All of the huge investment capital is tied up in whether or not they have these good scores. Because if they lose the score, they might get delisted. They might get taken down off of the the index listing. So none of the big investors are going to put long-term money in it. And then it's also going to create a market scare. And they're going to say, well, why did you get delisted? You must be doing something wrong. And so people will shy away from them. Plus, they got all this leverage over the board. They got all this leverage over the policy if they want to keep their score up. But then the really nasty one is they also have all this because they're huge banks and they're tied up with huge amounts of of lending, a lot of companies operate in a way that's not the way normal people operate. They're constantly operating kind of on margin. And so the idea is that, you know, let's say I'm Bud Light and I want to make $100 million worth of beer. Like that's a lot of money, right? So I go buy all the barley or the hops or whatever it is I have to buy, the water, the machinery, the electricity. I have huge bills in the short term. That beer is not going to sell for a year or two right? To, to make it up. We know in the long run, it's going to work out. So it's fine. And then the wheel just keeps turning and they make money and they make profit over time. But in the short term, what they do is they borrow that money. They borrow, they have short term lines of capital, uh, lines of lines of, of, of credit, really. They're buying it on credit, just like your credit card. And if you don't have a good enough ESG score, they won't let you borrow the money or they make the interest rates so high that you can't, you know, do it in a, in a reasonable way. So your customer base is very important in the long term, but it's not important in the short term for any given business. Mm-hmm. What's important in the short term is having access to the, that capital, that being able to be listed mm-hmm. in the stocks. So they have this conflict between yes. short term and long term interests, and they will go under in the short term because they owe their creditors hundreds of millions or billions of dollars mm-hmm. that they have to be able to pay. So they have to have access to that line of credit, and they'll get cut off from their line of credit because they're not being socially responsible or environmentally responsible, but you see that this turns into just this whole corrupt thing where a very small number of people like Larry Fink and Klaus Schwab and whoever's on these executive boards gets to decide what the policy is for every major company in the world. Uh-huh. And if they don't do it, they, they're, they're going to get crushed. My Pillow is celebrating their remarkable 20-year anniversary, and they want to thank each and every one of you for your support with an incredible offer. 
Right now, you can grab a queen-size MyPillow regulator price at $69.98 for just $19.98. And for just an additional $10, you can upgrade to the king size. To claim this unbeatable deal, head over to MyPillow.com and click on the radio podcast square. Use promo code DANGEROUS to unlock Mike's amazing offer. You can also call at one 800 941 10272. That's 1-800-941-0272 and use the same promo code DANGEROUS. MyPillow's patented fill adjusts to your exact needs, ensuring you get the best night's sleep ever. The anniversary celebration also brings deep discounts on all MyPillow products from luxury bed sheets and cozy my slippers to soothing towels and comfortable mattresses. Now let me share a personal secret with you. I've experienced the MyPillow magic myself and I can't help but rave about it. The pillows are amazing. I use my pillow every single night and the difference in my sleep since I've started using it is astounding. I wake up every morning and my neck feels great. Uh, I love my pillow. So here's your chance to join the MyPillow family and enjoy the best night's sleep of your life. Don't miss out on the biggest sale in MyPillow history. Remember that's MyPillow.com promo code DANGEROUS or call 1-800-941-0272. Don't wait. This incredible offer won't last forever. Sleep better and feel better thanks to my pillow. And that's why, like I said, you hear so many people like, why would they do that? It didn't even make business sense. You know, why would you put this, you know, little gay boy on a, on a, on a Bud Light can knowing how their customers are going to react? Because it just, doesn't matter what their customers want and don't want as much as it matters because they're not operating in a market. They're operating under a cartel. Mm-hmm. And I use that language really deliberately. It, I mean, it's, it's a yeah, racketeering, sure, yeah. it, it's a financial racketeering operation. It's the same. I tell people all the time, like, think of like Bud Light is like you live in in Harlem, like in the 90s, right? And it, it's like dangerous, right? And you got a heroin dealer that runs your block. So Bud Light is like, you you live there. Bud Light is like your teenage, your 15-year-old son, right? And so the heroin dealer comes and knocks on the door one day, or one of his guys, he knocks on the door and he's like, your kid's going to sell this stuff for me. What do you say, Right. That's the position when they're like, put, put Dylan Mulvaney on a beer can. That's the position Bud Light's in. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes, in this case, is probably the human rights campaign because they have a proxy score called the Corporate Equality Index that scores up into their ESG score. And they say, you've got to do transvisibility stuff. It doesn't, maybe they don't say put Dylan Mulvaney. They say, you got to do transvisibility in your, in your marketing. And it's the same as if you're living on this dangerous block and the heroin dealer comes his, or his tough guys come and say, your kid's going to sell for us. As dad, you don't want him selling. You don't want him getting in that mess. But you also know if you say no, it might be real bad for you. Yeah, and, and your son. And your son. That's right. And so you've got a tough decision. Right? So what I'm saying is we're not operating in a market. We're operating under literally a, a, a cartel. A, a cartel. Yeah. And the cartel logic, the financial cartel is so powerful that these companies, Disney, Target, Bud Light, you know, we can go down the list and Ford made the, the, you know, the gay Raptor or whatever they called it, the rainbow truck, these companies and the healthcare industry is all wrapped up in it. They don't have the, whether they want to participate in woke or what, or not, they don't have the, they don't really have the ability to say no, because Jimmy, the gun or Larry Fink, the gun has basically showed up and said, you got a nice business here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, mm. you know, and that's the logic that they have to operate under. But this with a couple of savvy moves could very easily be, you know, they're trying to bust uh, Trump's lawyers for, for racketeering. This is racketeering. Is, is, I mean, is that, is it already too far down the road to turn this around? Some people say so. I don't, I have, I mean, I have no powers that be to to say racketeering and turn us around. The powers that be have to be on board with that. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that fit too, right? that, That is the trick, but the, like, I have, I have no, it's really a dumb argument, like logically, but I have no practical use mm-hmm. for like, oh, it's too far gone. Yeah. So I can't operate. Maybe it is, but I can't sure. operate as though it is. I have to operate as though, I you know, I, and it, it does depend. I mean, they're, it's, they're not just going to let President Trump back into office, but we can imagine, at least in theory, that President Trump gets back into office. And what if he makes good on his deal? He's going to clean house, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not even President Trump. Maybe it's somebody else. And then they're going to clean up you know, as much as they can, and they can do enough damage in the short term to get a functioning DOJ that can prosecute some of these crimes, all of a sudden you could have a major turn real fast. Yeah. And you don't need a huge runway to do that. If they could come in and just clear house for 90 days, 
and you you see the way that you know the whole media, the whole apparatus, the, the, the with the indictments and everything else. You see how afraid they are that something well, like this the, could happen. That they of the world know that he could do that, and that's why they are. If you had, yeah, if he had a completely you know focused and not corrupt DOJ for ninety days, he could probably break a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I I agree, and uh, you know I know a lot of conservatives and republicans were like we were hoping he wasn't gonna be our candidate but he's gonna be our candidate it looks like it uh, looks that and, way and, uh, and people you better know, like it or not be, people better you know if he's gonna be our candidate people better get behind him because yeah. the, the consequences of not getting behind him or uh are great so you cannot like him you cannot like his tweets you cannot like his but the consequences of him not getting in office uh versus yeah the, the other side and i know people say you don't pick the greater of two evils uh Man, you better you better be on the right side of this. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. country better be on the right side of this in a, in an overwhelming way because there's going there's going to be voter suppression and, and corruption and and voter. I mean, this is why we're seeing the you know push towards mail in ballots again with COVID. Oh yeah, of course. But uh, I do think overwhelming uh, majority of Americans have the ability to even override that uh that voter fraud. I think we do if the numbers are really high because a lot of people actually show up and vote. Then all of a sudden they the numbers have to come out fake. Yeah. You have to end up to, to cook books. You're going to have to have over 100% turnout. Yeah. Or the numbers are going to be so ridiculous that nobody, that, that, that it's not easily believed. In fact, I'm so kind of, you know, skeptical of how things work that my bigger fear now isn't this, that pe people won't turn out. My bigger fear is that people will and that what they'll do is actually plant illegal ballots for Trump and then find them and say, oh, Trump did elite you know voter yeah. voter fraud or whatever and put lock him up you know and all of a sudden all these rules that they've created for the last three or four years that they've been running under they'll flip over immediately and well, somebody been you know false flag right? him into into jail or whatever and so i i think that they i mean my perception of the way that the, the if we if we might call it the regime my mm -hmm. perception is that the regime is acting in strength that comes from weakness mm -hmm. right they're scared so they're reacting wildly they're locking guys up for like 20 something years for stuff that is ridiculous like shaking yeah. a fence or pounding on a window or not even being in in, in the case of the proud boy guy we just, we just had one guy there. that one kid committed suicide yeah uh because you know this isn't to... this this isn't what you do from a position of confidence unless they are absolutely sure they have everything locked up it's mm -hmm. it, i feel like they're flailing these these indictments that they've thrown at trump some of them are just so insane and his lawyers, like, come on. Well, I mean, I think it's the point to where you don't, they don't even care if they have the evidence to win. They just want time up in litigation. And, oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, look at the dates. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> the dates of these, I mean, right right before at Super Tuesday. Yeah, 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 or, of course. Yeah. So um, when it comes to America, this is my perspective, the why behind this. Like, And I think you kind of touched on it, but I want to go a little bit deeper into it. Like, if you want globalism to take root it can't coexist with a strong america so you have to target america so a lot of this woke stuff i know it's around the world but it seems like it's getting pushed more here in our culture is the the woke uh push in america to weaken america for the globalists yeah of course the the biggest impediment to the global tyranny is the american constitution okay so if america is whole and contiguous and strong and is willing to stand and defend its constitution even if it's kind of in a backwards, broken way where it's not doing what it fully should, it's massively in their way because the Constitution is a document and the Bill of Rights is a document ensuring individual rights. Mm -hmm. And collectivism is the opposite of individual rights. You're going to do and say what you're told. Mm -hmm. So the Constitution is the biggest stumbling block. Particularly if, if Americans truly believe there is inalienable rights by God, not by government. That's right. And all these people right now, all these right-wing, I call them right-wing doomsages, all they're out there saying, oh, the Constitution already failed, the Constitution already failed. I'm like, okay, traitor. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is, look at the difference between the United States and Canada and ask yourself why it's different. Why is it so different between the United States and Canada right now? And you can say, oh, well, guns. Well, guess what, guys? That's the Second Amendment. That's in the Constitution. Yeah. You can say it's free speech. Well, that's the First Amendment, guys. That's in the Constitution. You could say it's the division of powers. Whoops. That's the Constitution, too. The difference between how far down the road Canada is and the United States right now is everything to do with the Constitution. It's not to say that the Constitution is being defended as strongly as it can be or should be. But it is to say that it's still working to be a stopgap on tyranny. So, yeah, absolutely. They've got to weaken the United States because they've got to get the, effectively, they've got to get belief in the Constitution or the Constitution itself out of the way. 
As many of you know, suicide rates amongst our military and first responder communities are at an all-time high. Uh, Mighty Oaks, for the last decade, has been on the front lines as being part of the solution. Many of you ask, you know, how can we get involved? How can we be part of that solution? And this year is our 13th annual Mighty Oaks Warriors Gala in the Woodlands, Texas, and that is a way to be part of the solution. You can join us by buying your tickets uh, in the link below and come and join us. We're gonna have an amazing night. Uh, Always incredible food and speaking will be myself and Jace Robertson, our friend from Duck Dynasty at Duck Commander, uh, as well as Anthony Rendon, a baseball player from the LA Angels, who actually is from Texas as well. Uh, we're going to have an incredible night. Uh, we're going to join together and lock arms to be part of the solution to save lives, restore families, and change legacies for eternity. I hope to see you there. I've heard you talk about like Marxism and communism being tied to Gnostic. And, yeah, yeah, and it's hermetic, a Gnostic, hermetic, it, hermetic religion. Yeah, it's these weird esoteric religions that go way, 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 way back. I mean, so arguably, it's, it's not just a political no structure. It's it goes deeper. Than yeah, that. it's a religion tying it tying it all in together. Right, globalist the globalist agenda has ties to Marxism. Marxism has ties to Gnosticism. So that's so right. Give us like a. I know that's a lot, but give us like the rundown of that well you see in the book of genesis uh, and I, <laughs> you think i'm joking that yeah. is really where it starts so the book of genesis the third chapter of genesis you have the snake and the serpent in the in the garden comes to eve and said god hath not said that you'll surely die if you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil yeah, yeah. that's gnosticism gnosticism is this idea that you've got your religious belief you've got your philosophy you've got your science or whatever but there's these guys who know it better than you do you, they only want you to know it so far right the priests only want you to know this much so they can stay in control of you, but we know the secret. So this is a cult thing, right? I mean, I say a cult, but it's also a cult. It is, yeah. It's a cult belief. You see in all the religions well, in Islam. That's right. They, There's always, you know, they only want you to know so much, but we know more than you do. Mm -hmm. And so what Gnosticism refers to, Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. It's one of the different words they used for knowledge. And it means self-knowledge special self, secret self-knowledge that allows you to save yourself from the condition of, of life and really the oppression of life because the Gnostic belief at the bottom is that the world itself is a prison, that we're imprisoned in our very existence, who we are as people, the world, the social structures, everything. The, the universe itself is actually a huge prison to trap the human soul, which they actually believe is continuous with, not separate from in any way, God. So they start with the belief that humans are God already, that they've been kept out of that knowledge, they haven't been able to eat the fruit to know that they're actually as God or that they are gods, and that they're imprisoned in this, this world that we live in. And so what does that have to do with, and there, there's, you know, various Gnostic sects of Judaism, there were Gnostic sects of Christianity, that's where the word Gnostic actually got applied, was in first century Christianity. They said that is it they're tied to the agnostic. Is it tied to the agnostic means lacking belief in that knowledge? Okay. So, uh, sort of. Okay. Um, but the idea here is that they believe like they know more about religion and the true meaning of religion than anybody. And one of the things that they actually believe is that all the religions are actually just reflections of one primordial true religion. So Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, you know, even philosophies, Romanticism, German idealism. All of these are actually you know, just facets of the same one underlying truth. We are all one, you know, kind of new age stuff. In fact, that's what new age stuff is, is this stuff just kind of repackaged in our day. And so what does that have to do with Marxism? So the idea, and this is going to get a little technical if you don't mind, but the idea is that in Gnosticism is that the, the deity, the, the God that we think is God, right? They think that there's this all perfect God outside of that, but the thing we think is God is actually a demon that created the world called the Demiurge. Mm. And so the Demiurge is this, it means artisan in Greek, that's where the word Demiurge comes from, the builder, builder of the world. So when it's like God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis, that's not God, that's the Demiurge posing as God, and he's actually an evil demon creating the evil fallen world. The true spiritual God is separate and above that and is wholly untainted. So he's actually, the, the, the thing that we think is God in, in the Gnostic religion is actually an evil demon to trap us. Well, that's exactly what Marx said, actually, is that God, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. In other words, it keeps you not in prison, but drugged up and dumbed down so that you're not willing to, he said, literally, he said that you're not willing to understand the real nature of your suffering and thus bring an end to the causes of your suffering. 
So what happened in the you know mid early to mid 1800s, I guess late 1700s also in Europe, this is the French Romantics, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. This is you know Hegel and the German idealists, Kant before Hegel, and then Marx. Is that they saw that the spirit world, like it's not like spirits, it's social reality. It's our social environment. So the Holy Spirit is really the spirit of all of us working together to change the world. It's humans. It's people. That's what's really the spirit of the world. And so if we realize that, then we can seize the means of production of the spirit or of, of what moves the world, creates and changes history, and we can direct it to its intended end. And that's what, all the way down to this woke stuff, down to the World Economic Forum, that's what these 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 people are wizards. They believe they know the intended direction of history and maybe the even intended end of history, which is like a getting back into the Garden of Eden. And they believe that what you have to do is convince people that what the life that they have is actually a prison that we can break free from and transform. That's a word they use all the time. In fact, 17 Sustainable Development Goals, if you go look them up, what does it say? 17 Sustainable Development Goals to transform our world, to transform our world into what it was meant to be from the beginning, which is like the Garden of Eden, but we get to go back in on our own terms. So they believe that... Without from, without God. Without, without God, God that we know. No, because we, we're, we're God. We yeah. just don't realize it yet. Yeah. That's what they want. So with Marx, and this is like really actually kind of simple to understand. You know, he talks about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So that's the capitalists. The bourgeoisie is like the middle class and the capitalists are, are the ones above them. And they have bourgeois values, and that locks everybody into the system of capitalism, and we have to awaken the working class as a proletariat to seize the means of production and overthrow the system. That's Gnosticism. What he's saying is that the, there is no spirits, right? There's no transcendent. There's no God. Marx threw all that stuff down. What he said is that there's people, and there are certain people who control everything, and they set up in a system of control, and that is the bourgeoisie, and then they created an ideology or like a big religious belief for everybody, and that's called capitalism, to trap them in the system. So the demiurge, the builders of society, are the bourgeois class. So if you can awaken as the normal proletariat people to the fact that you're being held down by this evil demon called the bourgeoisie, then you can take it away from them, take the power away from them, and use it to transform the world for what it was supposed to be. What Marx believed what his secret knowledge, he says, is that human beings are what he calls a species being. That's a fancy word that means a perfectly social animal. Mm. So we are meant to be social. We work for each other, not for ourselves. And that the thing that alienates us, in his words, from being realizing that we're perfectly social is that we have private property. Because if I can you know, own this cup, mm -hmm. then I can say that cup is mine, which means I'm different than you. Mm -hmm. But if, I, if that cup is ours then we're not really that different. Mm, we right. share all of our stuff. But the second I can say, this is mine and that's yours, now we're different. So we're alienated from one another. So Marx, the secret knowledge was being socialist. Did, did Marx really believe this or did he, oh, yeah. did he Did he say it to manipulate and control? Well, I mean, both. Yeah. Both, I think. I think he truly believed it though. I think yeah. he actually did. I think he believed that he had found like the secret sauce of humanity is that, you know, other people can pay my bills for me is basically right, what, right. what it boils down to. So I think it's one of these things where, you know, and not that I'm a big fan of Nietzsche, but Nietzsche, another philosopher, said that hitherto, he said, the philosophers, uh, no, sorry, that's something Mark said, my bad. What, what he's, he's the hitherto. What Nietzsche said was that, uh, what Nietzsche said was that the philosophers are mostly rationalizing their own pathologies. They're not doing philosophy they're weirdos, mm -hmm. and they're coming up with complicated explanations for why their weirdo or their perversity or whatever else is okay. And so I think that's what was going on with Marx. We all know Marx didn't get a, didn't want to get a job. He wanted to be able to sit there and write and be considered important and, and a big mm -hmm. deal. We know that he didn't pay his bills. We know that he leached off of his first his mom, and then his, his, his father cut him off earlier, then his mom, then Engels, then his wife's family. We know that he just leached off of people for his whole life. It's real easy to see why he was like, economic conditions make us who we are and other people should pay my bills. So yeah. what's the true nature of man is other people should pay my bills. That's the true nature of man for Marx. It's not hard to d dive into his psychology. I think he truly convinced himself of this, though, uh, that, that we could live in a higher and better world if everybody just paid everybody else's bills for, for, for everybody else. Well, as soon as you say it out loud, you're yeah. like, that's not going to work. No, yeah. it's, it's like, it's like uh, you know, I say it right now, like having a social system in America like that gives unlimitedly and open borders 
Yeah. It, it doesn't work. Those two things co- that can't coexist. No, they cannot coexist. And it collapses eventually. It's largely the same mentality. And then the, that is what happens is that it collapses eventually. Yeah. As it turns out, everybody in the whole world knows how socialism works in practice. If they went to school and they had to do a single group project, the second you put four kids together and you're like, go salt, go do this homework together. Everybody knows that one kid does almost all of it. Two of the kids do absolutely nothing. One person's in the middle, kind of like, eh, and isn't really competent. And the one kid who does everything gets pissed off. And the two that are that, that don't do anything are like laughing through it and yeah. just screwing around. And the person in the middle is kind of like pulling their hair out all the time. That's socialism. That's what happens every single time. So if you say, well, everybody's going to pay everybody else's bills. The second you like wake up in the morning one day and you're like, you know what? I'm tired today. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like going to work. And why should I, right? I'm not working for me. I'm working for everybody else. The whole thing starts to fall apart. And then what happens is you got to have exactly what you saw in Soviet Union or China. You have to have somebody show up with a gun or a social credit system that says, if you don't do this, we're going to ruin your, we're going to ruin your existence and throw your family in the gulag. So yeah, it's a total Gnostic religion though. It is, the belief is that we are imprisoned in our economic system and it's run by these people who want to keep us locked down and that we could learn to seize the means of production and, and become perfectly social people if we could just get the people who benefit most from private property out of the way. It's, it's a complete religious system. Because of that. There's so many places people go listen to you. Uh, your your organization is a uh, is a new discourse. Uh, you have you were talking before the show. You have tons of topics like bullet topics. Yep. Uh, for those listening, he's written several amazing books: uh, cynical theories, uh, counter counter woke craft, and the Marxification of education. Yep. Uh, where can people find some of this stuff? Yeah, well, it's all you can find everything from the website. So it's newdiscourses.com. You can go there and you'll find podcasts, articles, I put together a not very comprehensive, I got tired of, I got tired and quit, but I was putting together <laughs> an encyclopedia of the way they misuse words. We all know that they use words, you know, they say diversity, it obviously doesn't mean anybody thinks differently. Right. They say inclusion, it obviously means excluding people they don't like. So I made an, an encyclopedia of a whole bunch of their words. I did like 120, 130 of them or something like that. So that's their, like I said, podcasts and long form podcasts and short form. If you got interested in this Gnostic stuff, I got you know, several three-hour episodes. I got an episode three hours long about how Marxism is Gnostic that blew people away. I got another episode that's three hours long that's how the trans thing is Gnostic. The mm-hmm. Gnostic religion, it's, it's called the, 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 what's it, the queer Gnostic cult or something like that. That's what it's called. And I just lay the whole thing out. All this weird stuff with trans, all the weird stuff with, with gender ideology, the whole thing, it, it's the same idea. You're trapped in your body. You got to get out of your body. Do you have a 10-minute, do you have a 10-minute, course on that should you give there are there is one of the bullets on on that topic where i just on each of those two topics where i just kind of drive through the bullets on, well. you, on your youtube right yeah the new bullets are, are the bullets. yeah new discourses bullets are the short form podcast i try to keep them under 20 minutes sometimes i get a little worked up and go a little over but they're always under half an hour i, I know i said we were, we were wrapping up and uh, i got one more thing you talked about because you talked about gender ideology. I don't know if you've seen this, but on August seventh, the United States Military Department of Defense changed the it's it's uh, the military uh, the military uh, decorations yep. uh, manual. So if those who don't believe me, you can go look this up. Uh, it's changed number five to the military decor uh, decorations manual. It took effect August seventh. Page five of the manual and the manual number because I know people won't believe me on this. Uh, go look it up yourself. Uh, manual one three four eight point three three volume four. And so what the, what the DoD did was they uh, all the most prestigious awards in our nation that you know men and women either and I'll, I'll emphasize men and women either either have uh, put their lives at risk for or even died for those most prestigious medals that they get they're no longer allowed to have he. She, serviceman, service woman on. It has to be themselves, service person. Uh, that's officially actually happened last month. Yeah, of and, course, because uh, they have to change the social environment to reflect the new religion that yeah. they're trying to force we, on everybody. It's all very, we have some time, James, so if you don't mind, it's all it's all very cultish. And, and I, it is and a I cult. heard you explain this in a, in a way that's very applicable to something that we are dealing with in today's time with this gender ideology mm-hmm. and, and the inner circle and outer circle and how yeah, yeah. most of the, the people that are falling prey to this ideology don't even know what's going on. So can you quickly run through yeah, the cult, structure of a cult and how it applies to Cults are in like levels. Yeah, they're like yeah. layers. It's like an onion. So all cults work this way because the power structure has to work this way. 
if you don't have the have it work this way, you know, who wants to join a cult? Nobody wants to join a cult. Yeah. So most of the people in a cult don't know they're in a cult. So there's the leaders, and that's like it's sometimes called the inner circle. Those are the people that really know what's going on. So is Klaus Schwab in the inner circle? You can bet your bottom dollar he is. He knows what's going on. He knows why it's going on. Usually you have to go through some kind of an initiation rite to be in the inner circle of a cult. And this cult, it seems like maybe visiting an island with with the late Jeffrey Epstein was a way to, you know, enter into the outer reaches of the inner circle. Because now you're owned. Yeah, exactly. Because now you can't tell how the cult really works because yeah. they have major blackmail on you. Yeah. And so, you know, there's certain assurances you have to have that you're not going to blow the cover of the cult. The way cults work, by the way, in terms of how they achieve stuff is corruption. Everybody scratches each other's backs, usually up the ladder in a yeah. cult. And so if I need to get something done at, say, City Hall, and I have a guy in the in the club, he works at City Hall, and like you want to, let's say you and I are business competitors, and I want to get a permit, and you want to get a permit, and I'm in the cult and you're not, I just say, hey, can you rubber stamp my permit and make sure his gets buried in paperwork for two years, and then I outcompete you organically, right? Yeah. That's the, the secret sauce of, of secret societies is corruption. corruption. But the... Uh, I, the inner circle is the only people who actually know what's going on. It's usually not very many of them. There's a few dozen or a few hundred maybe in this case, because um, it's a really big one. Sure. Uh, around that, you have what's called, and I take this terms from from the kind of uh, monasteries from like China. This is called the inner school. So these are people who actually know the doctrine of the cult. They're, so then they... The, <laughs> <laughs> they know it, but they don't know why they know it. They don't know what it's for. They usually have bought the lie. So the inner circle knows what it's really for, which is usually just their own power, their own aggrandizement, their own riches to take people's wives and kids or whatever it is, creepy thing that they're after, depending on the cult. The inner circle is like the true believers. They fully, they understand the stuff, but they don't know why they're doing it. Mm. They're like, no, we want to create a better economy with, you know, completely sustainable. And it's very important to so that they're like full-blown cultists but they don't totally know used. that they're they're being used by the inner circle. But they they can create the doctrine, they can teach the doctrine. So your college professors that are like woke professors, your guys that are going on TV and talking about the climate stuff all the time, these guys are totally inner school, but not inner circle. Bill Gates, inner circle, for sure, yeah. right? These people, not inner circle. They're, they just know the stuff. So your climate expert or your woke right. expert or whatever going on, they're inner circle people. And then you have what's called the outer the outer school most of the cult that's the people you're really usurping off of notice how this looks like a multi-level marketing mm-hmm. program it is yeah. scheme yeah the outer circle is most of your cultists and they're people who kind of go along with it but they, they they don't they're just believers just the antifa people with the signs and- they're just believers yeah. right they've bought into the belief system they just believe it they don't, they're not the teachers or the mm. adepts would be an, an older word for it. They're initiates. They've been brought into the belief. And what they are is they're caught up morally and socially. They know that they are going to be considered good people if they believe it, bad people if they stop. They know that their social group is going to reaffirm that and they're going to, you know, accept them if they if they buy in and they're going to cancel them if they don't. How old is this? The what structures of cults or this cult this particularly? Cult, this cult. I mean, depends if we want to call this cult Marxism, which is what I would call it, in which case it's roughly in the 1840s. Um, if you want to say that it's, you know, if you really want to go back to the whole kit and caboodle, it goes back to even Plato and before, so over two, 3,000 years old. Uh, you know, you mentioned the word hermeticism earlier. Hermetic is like the magic religion of Egypt, of Alexandria before Plato. Because so, that inner circle gets handed down, right? It, it continues on, right? Yeah. As people, so like, I guess that's what I'm asking, like how far does this inner circle go back thousands of years? I mean, possibly, it may be not continuous, but certainly we're looking at, you know, in this case, the inner circle would probably be uh, European dynasties that are set up six, 700 years old that have been pretty continuous. Yeah. Um, there's probably been some upheaval or overturning. Maybe there's a consistent line, I don't know. The Gnostic and uh, Hermetic beliefs kind of got e- either suppressed or um, kind of locked up within uh, under the kind of Catholic rule in the Middle Ages. And then there's a massive flourishing of them again during mm-hmm. the Renaissance, starting in like 12 and 1300, and then it really flourished in the 1500s. And so then this whole kind of like Rosicrucian cult and then the, the Masons and all of this started to build up. That was all like 1600s, 1700s and so. And so if we think of that as kind of the operating system, we can guess it's a few hundred years old uh, with this particular group of people. Communism, again, you know, there was the, the Communist League hired Marx and Engels. 
So that was a thing that was happening in the 1820s and 1830s, but so we're still just looking at about 200 years old for that specific thing. If there's some other driver behind that, and again, I'm not suggesting it's the Jews because I don't think it's the Jews, <laughs> just to make that really clear for people who who can't leave it alone, um, it, that might be older, it might be continuous all the way back to even the Platonic cults uh, or the pre, uh, pre-Socratic cults of you know Alexandria before that. I certainly want to go, go do some more listening to your stuff. Uh, anybody wants to continue listening, uh, go to newdiscourses.com uh, and you can learn more about James Lindsay's work there. And uh, awesome to have you on, man. Yeah, really, this was really fun. Awesome Thanks. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go do some listening. So James Lindsay, stay in dangerous. Uh, I'll see you guys next time.